Okay, so we continue um, our study this morning in Christology. Um, so Pastor Rick and I have been, are going to be teaching through um, Christology and this, this doctrine. We're doing somewhat of an, an intro now, um, maybe four, five week, maybe six week intro. Um, and right now we're in Christ and the history of Israel. Um, and specifically today, Christ as the head of the new covenant. So we'll, we'll walk through the covenant of grace, um, the Abrahamic covenant, um, the new covenant, um, the covenant as the, the covenant of grace as it relates to, to Genesis 3.15. And um, just hopefully just our, have our vision of Christ sharpened as we work through the scriptures. Okay. So <clears throat> first, Christ as the head of the new covenant. Covenant is a major concept in the Old Testament. The way it develops within the old economy and the way it is interpreted within the new shows that it is arranged by God. The triune God carries through the covenant, but Jeremiah 31 in Hebrews 8 gives special reference to the head of the new covenant, who, as its mediator, is both God and man together at the same time. Uh, hypostatic union, fully God, fully man, Christ, uh, thereby fulfilling both sides of the covenant. So let's take a look at Genesis 3.15 um, and the covenant of grace. Genesis 3.15 and the covenant of grace. Someone want to read that for us? Genesis 3.15. Genesis 3.15. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Thank you, Forrest. So as uh, Alec... Uh, Can I ask one question? Oh, yeah. Is that supposed to be H-E-E-L? Heel? I think so. That's funny. I copied and paste, pasted that copy paste from a website. <laughs> Bible Gateway, shame on you. But yes, thank you. <laughs> All right. Um, so as Alec um, Moiter says, the whole of scripture is not packed in every scripture, but we may allowably expect every scripture to prepare and make room for the whole. Um, this is what happens in Genesis 3.15. The first gospel promise in Genesis 3.15 announces the covenant of grace, that is, the redemption of the elect by the mediator. <clears throat> the covenant of grace, what is it? The covenant of grace is the progressive historical account of the administration of the gospel and the history of redemption. At least three major themes come out of Genesis 3.15 as it relates to the covenant of grace. So I'll briefly uh, go through those one, one by one. We have four here. First, it establishes a principle that runs, through, runs throughout the Old Testament, creating an expectation of a redeemer who would be a descendant, a seed of Adam and Eve. So it creates this expectation of a redeemer. In, deliver, in deliberate echo of this line of thought, God's covenant with the patriarch Abraham follows suit with the theme of the seed or offspring. Uh, Genesis 17:7 uh, 7 says, and I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring 
after you. <clears throat> and then I'm going to read Genesis 15.3, which is another good passage that lays out this sort of theme of offspring and seed. Genesis 15.3, And Abraham said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be and I'm sorry, and a member of my household will be my heir. Right? So you see this theme of offspring. You also see that in Genesis 13, Genesis 18, uh, Genesis uh, 12, Genesis 21, 12, so on and so on. So no one reading the Bible can miss the connecting threads. God is doing something in the history of Israel that has its genesis and a promise given in Eden. When Mary discovers that she is expecting a baby, Gabriel announces to her concerning her future son, he will be great, Luke 1.32. This seems to clearly pick up on the phrase already made to both Abraham and David. Genesis 12.2 says, and I will make you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. <clears throat> and then 1 Samuel, uh, I'm sorry, 2 Samuel 7.9 says, and I have been with you wherever you went and have cut off all your enemies before you. And I will make, make for you a great name like the name of the great ones of the earth. But the he in Luke 1.32 is, of course, Jesus. And Galatians 3.16 makes clear for us that the offspring spoken of in Genesis 17 has always been in reference to Christ. The scriptures pointing ahead to the fulfillment of Genesis 3.16. Okay. Second, as we consider Genesis 3.15 and the new covenant, it establishes the parameters by which God will redeem his people from their sin. From the earliest times, Genesis 3.15 has been called the Proto-Evangelium. You guys ever heard that before, Proto-Evangelium? Anyone Know what it means, Lucy? Right, exactly. The first declaration of the gospel, the first note of God's redemptive intention following the fall in the Garden of Eden. You hit it right on the head. When Adam and Eve failed to obey the terms of the covenant of works, see that in Genesis 3, 6, God did not destroy them, which would have been just for him to do, but instead he revealed his covenant of grace to them by promising a savior which we see in Genesis 3.15. God's method of grace is costly. The heel of the Savior will be bruised. This is a metaphor that, in context, is to be contrasted with the blow the serpent receives, the crushing of his head. But it is immediately apparent that this involves the shedding of substitutionary blood. This seems to be what's behind the provision of the animal skins as a covering for Adam and Eve in Genesis 3.21. Blood needs to be shed for sin to be forgiven. The way is now clear. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. Hebrews 9.22. <clears throat> Third, this verse establishes, Genesis 3.15, establishes a cosmic explanation for the disorder of the world. Satan is at work. Now, there's no mention of Satan here, only a serpent. Adam and Eve are responsible for their actions and are punished accordingly, but their actions are intertwined with the serpent's wickedness. 
deception, lies, and the twisting of God's word are mingled here with blatant rebellion as a choice of free will. The serpent is part of that which the Lord God had made, but he is no longer in the condition the Lord God made. And Genesis sort of draws a veil over the origins of the nature of this rebellion. Um, sin existed before the fall in, in Eden. Um, and it is only partially unveiled elsewhere um, in First Chronicles 21 and Job um, 1 and also Zechariah 3. Eve's sin was more, was more than merely something internal. The reality is that there was also an outside wicked influence. Genesis 3.1 seems to make that clear for us. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of the tree in the garden? The serpent in the garden grows into, and you sort of see this throughout the Bible, the serpent in the garden grows into, from the serpent in the garden to this red just dragon in Revelation 12. The serpent is the murderer and the liar um, and the great deceiver, right? So again, Genesis 3.15 sort of sets the tone for this cosmic explanation for this disorder in the world. Fourth, lastly here. In the covenant of grace, I'm sorry, fourth, in, in the covenant of grace, Seen in Genesis 3.15, the principle of the victory of the kingdom of God over the kingdom of darkness is established from the beginning. We talked about this a couple weeks ago, um, that God wasn't surprised or caught off guard by um, the Satan's temptation of Adam and Eve in the fall. Um, but he's established a redemption from the very beginning, which gives us great hope. And it is echoed by Jesus at Caesarea Philippi, and he says, the gates are set against the church of Christ, but Jesus assures his disciples that the church will be victorious, Matthew 16, 18. And what are gates? Are gates offensive mechanisms or defensive mechanisms? Defensive, right? They're used to keep things out and keep things in, but those gates will not prevail. The kingdom of God will advance through them. Right? So we usually talk about, when we talk about the gates of Hades will, will not prevail, we sort of have this picture that the kingdom of God is here, and then uh, the gates of Hades, uh, the, the prince of the power of darkness, Satan, and his imps and demons, they're pressing in on the kingdom. But the scripture talks about Hades having the gates. So the kingdom and the gospel proclamation as the kingdom advances is advancing through the gates of Hades. It's not the kingdom sort of sitting back and the Hades progressing, but it's the kingdom of God advancing through um, the gates of Hades, the gates of hell, uh, Satan and his demons, right? So the kingdom is on the offensive and Hades is on the defensive, right? So we should think about that and talk about it in a way that how, how the Bible talks about it, um, <clears throat> being faithful to the word there. So the work of redemption unfolds in enemy-occupied territory of deadly and tireless opposition by Satan and his minions. The story of redemption is not a cliffhanger to the very end, right? It's not a tale that leaves us uncertain of the outcome until the last page. 
The precise nature of the serpent's destiny as the lake of fire is not disclosed until the end, Revelation 2010. But from the outset, his doom is sealed. And we see that in Genesis 3.15. God has established a covenant by which he will deal with the enemy of his elect. Christian discipleship is to be worked out within the context of the assurance of victory rather, rather than the prospect of defeat. So we're victorious, we're confident, right? We are to be equipped and ready for battle, but with the certainty that the decisive battle, that the decisive battle with the enemy has already taken place and has been won. So this is the hope God gives to us from the very beginning in Genesis 3.15, all right? So again, Genesis 3.15 as it relates to the new covenant. God gives us hope from the beginning that redemption is coming, all right? So the rest of the Bible unfolds and makes even more clear the specific way in which this promise will come to fruition. In each successive covenant, God makes with his people is another step toward the fulfillment of that original covenant promise, right? <clears throat> okay, let's transition to the covenant of Abraham, the Abrahamic covenant. Let us first note here how uh, the prototypical form of the covenant of grace, which is the covenant with Abraham, requires someone. It requires a head of the covenant administration who will be like Abraham in faith Indeed, who will be the very seed of Abraham. Galatians 3.16, which we'll talk about a little later. Um, he is the offspring spoken of in Genesis um, 17. So he will be like Abraham, or he will be, have the faith of Abraham, and be the seed of Abraham, but also greater than Abraham. John 8, do I have that here? No. John 8.53 says, Are you greater than our father Abraham? An answer to which Christ says, before Abraham, I am. Paul interprets the faith of Abraham and God as a resurrection faith leading to justification. All right? Let's take a look at Romans 4, 24, 25. Romans chapter 4, verse 24 and 25. I'll go ahead and read it since I don't have it. My PowerPoint here. <clears throat> Romans chapter 4, verse 24 to 25 says, <clears throat> which I'll start, start back up at verse 23. But the words it was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Such a good, good verse. He was raised for our justification. So he says, along similar lines, the writer of the epistle of Hebrews mentions Abraham's faith <clears throat> and God's ability to raise the dead. <clears throat> Abraham is placed in a long line of heroes and heroines in the faith who somehow were looking unto Jesus, who was truly the author and finisher of the faith as the ultimate head of the covenant of faith, which is the covenant of grace, rather than a covenant of works. Gahardus Voss explains this connection between Abraham and Christ. He says, 
Abraham's faith, uh, his trust in God for calling the things that are not as though they were. This does not, of course, mean that the objective content of the patriarch's faith was doctrinally identical with that of the New Testament believer. Paul is not saying that Abraham's faith had for its object the raising of Christ from the dead. What he means is that the attitude of faith towards the raising of Isaac and the attitude of faith towards the resurrection are identical in point of faith and are able to confront or to, to confront and incorporate the supernatural. Jean Mark uh, Berthu says in his uh, recent volume of the Covenant of God um, in, in the Holy Scripture, he amplifies his point. He says, he shows that the judgment of the flood did not solve the problem of corrupt mankind. He shows that the dispersion of the nations at the Tower of Babel did not solve the problem of human corruption. It would only be Christ in the flesh, the true descendant of Abraham, who would be able to redeem lost humanity from its corruption, death, and judgment. Again, we talked about this a couple of weeks ago. And even in our children's Sunday school class a few weeks ago, um, I taught on uh, basically Christ in all of scripture. And we talked about Christ. So he's prophesied, he's spoken of this Messiah who was to come, this Redeemer. He comes and he does what Adam and Eve failed to do. He does what Israel failed to do. He does what humanity as a whole fails to do, right? He's perfectly righteous and all things obeys the law of God perfectly, right? So Christ is the redeemer. He is the mediator. He is the one to which the whole of scripture points. Scripture turns on the hinge of Christ as the mediator, reconciling all things in himself, right? It's all about the person and work of Christ, all right? <clears throat> Oh, I'll pay for it here. Time I have 45. Okay, we're having a good time. All right, I'm going to transition to Christ um, in the new covenant, specifically the new covenant. The new covenant, which will be the grand fulfillment of all the earlier covenants, both in redeeming lost mankind and binding together in union and communion the Lord and his people, is set forth in Jeremiah 31. Jeremiah 31. Let me have someone go to Jeremiah 31, and we're going to read Jeremiah 31, verse 31 to 37. Can I put in here? Jeremiah 31, 31 to 37. <clears throat> so again, we're considering here the new covenant. <clears throat> so whoever... Okay. Thank <laughs> you. 
offspring of Israel cease from being a nation before me forever. Thus says the Lord, heavens above can be my earth, and the foundations of the earth below can be explored. Then I will cast off all the offspring of Israel for all that they have seen with their hands. Okay. Thank you. So, <clears throat> here we see the new covenant. If you have your ESV or whatever tra translation you have, above that section you see the new covenant. We see it laid out for us in Jeremiah 31 here. And it's actually uh, commented on, or sort of a commentary on this in Hebrews 8, Hebrews 8, 6 to 13, and Hebrews chapter 10, 1 to 18. Note those and then go back and sort of read them as they comment on Jeremiah 31. So the head or carrier through of the new covenant is not yet arrived when Jeremiah was writing. He says, behold, the days come. Behold, the days come. Jeremiah and the pious ones in Judah with him were looking forward to some new supernatural agent to come. Hebrews 8 in chapter 10 and 1 Corinthians chapter 11 um, tells us who this agent is and what he did in coming was all for the benefit of his church, which is in a mysterious and somehow in a spiritual continuity, notwithstanding temporary disruptions where there was quaking in the Old Testament in Israel. Um, they're in this sort of continuity with Old Testament Israel. Um, Herman Ritterboss, which was a Dutch theologian and biblical scholar in early 1900s, mid-1900s, says this, it is on account of this fellowship of the prophecy of the new covenant and the Christian church that all the privileges of the Old Testament people of God pass over to the church. It is as the church of Christ, the preeminent divine word of the covenant applies. I will be their God and they shall be my people, 2 Corinthians 6, 16. The more one views the Pauline epistles from this vantage point, the richer the materials prove to be that characterized the New Testament church and its continuity with ancient Israel and on the one hand, and as the church of the new covenant quali qualified by the forgiveness of sins and the gifts of the Holy Spirit on the other hand. All right, so there's continuity, discontinuity there. <clears throat> In other words, the Old Testament is a preparation for the coming of the mediator of the new covenant. He fulfills the various covenants of the old economy in his person and work. In him, we have both continuity with the old forms of the covenant and an open door to the fullness of what God is doing <clears throat> in the future of redemption. So the focal point where the old and new covenant meets is found in Jesus Christ. It's found in Christ. Again, it's all about the person and work of Christ. The old covenant as a guardian prepares the way for him and prepares his people for him. The old covenant includes that which has been traditionally described as moral law, as well as that which, has <clears throat> which was typical. That which was typical underwent change when the reality to which it pointed arrived. So it's pointing to something greater. It's pointing to something greater. When the dawn came, the shadow disappeared, Hebrews 10.1 says. The people of God are now defined in terms of their relation to Jesus rather than their relation to Jacob and Israel. <clears throat> Galatians uh, 3.16, keep talking about this. I think it's huge and important for us to see. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. 
it does not say and to offsprings, plural, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring. Who is Christ? Who is Christ? He's quoting directly from Old Testament, Genesis here, right? And he's giving us a commentary or interpreting that for us. What is it talking about? It's talking about Christ, always pointing ahead to Christ. Uh, Galatians 3.29, in, in the same line, sort of same line of thought here in, uh, in Galatians. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. I love these texts. I love when the New Testament <clears throat> sort of uh, draws out or makes clear something in the Old Testament. That is actually talking about this. This is that, right? So it's pointing forward uh, to Christ. The promised land is now defined in terms of the entire creation rather than a piece of real estate on the eastern shore of the Mediterranean Sea. Romans 4.13 for the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law, but through, right, but through the righteousness of faith, that he would be heir of the world. So it's, it's, it's expanded there. The temple is now defined in terms of Jesus Christ and his people rather than a building of stone and mortar. You guys see this? Someone want to read this for us? Thank you, Amanda. <clears throat> so Pastor Rick taught last week, you guys remember he talked about typology and, and allegory, right? <clears throat> Seeing the, the temple um, as revelation becomes more, more clear, this temple, this progression of the temple, Old Testament temple, Christ comes, he is God tabernacling amongst his people. Um, we being united with Christ are the temple of God as we point again to the new heavens and new earth where God himself is dwelling with his people. So this progression through scripture, <clears throat> but always pointing to something greater. The ceremonial laws are not defined in terms of the atoning death of Christ. Rather, <clears throat> they are defined, I'm sorry, I'm sorry the, the ceremonial laws are now defined in terms of the atoning death of Christ rather than, old covenant, bulls and goats, right? The blood of bulls and goats. In Hebrews 9 9-11 to 10-11, that whole passage sort of lays that out for us. Hebrews 9-11 to 10-11. For the sake of time, I'm not going to read it. But So now being in Christ, Christ is the final substitute. He is the Lamb of God. Lamb of God has its roots, this terminology has its roots in the Old Covenant. Something's being said here, right? Old Testament bulls, goats, lambs. The lamb, the final lamb is come. The final lamb is here. He has sacrificed himself. Hebrews says, now he now sits down at the right hand of God. His work is done. He's the priest who sacrifices, and he's the lamb, which we'll talk about in a bit as well. The moral law, however, that which sets forth the universal and eternal standard of righteousness is unchanged. Although it is now written on the hearts of God's people rather than on tablets of stone, this law remains the same. <clears throat> this law remains the same, the moral law of God. 
uh, often spoke of as the Ten, Ten Commandments, <clears throat> as they reflect the holiness of God. All right, so I'll briefly transition to speaking on um, Christ as prophet, priest, and king. Uh, Pastor Rick talked, uh, talked more fully on this last week, so I'm just going to try and skim over here. I hope this is a skim and not like too long. But Christ is prophet, 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 priest, and king. So the exercise of prophecy goes back into the early strands of Israel's history. From Adam to Samuel to David, God was raising up prophets to call the priesthood kings and people back to true faith and repentance. As prophets, Jesus pronounced an end to all our sin as the final prophet. In the Old Testament, the prophets, was, they were the mouthpiece of God to his people, sort of this mediator role. Um, in fact, the prophet often prefaced his words by saying specifically, thus says the Lord. As God's mouthpiece, the prophet spoke the words of indictment against the people for their sin and called them to repentance. The prophet pronounced the forgiveness of pardon to God. Jesus, as the final and sufficient prophet, has done all these things for us. He came to the world because of sin. He proclaimed our need to repent and believe in him, and he proclaimed our pardon and forgiveness. Although Christ was like other prophets, he was also very different. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us. How? By his son, through his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. So uh, <clears throat> that is to say the prophets, the, the, the prophets, the holy prophets of the old spoke the word, but Christ himself is the word. He is the final and great prophet. <clears throat> uh, Christ as priest. While the Old Testament Levitical priests died from being priests, Christ died as our priest, and thus his priesthood is unchangeable, Hebrews 7, 22 to 24. Because of Christ's total sufficiency of his atoning death, God raised him from the dead so that he always lives to make intercession for them, Hebrews 7, 25. He always lives to make intercession for them. He does this not in an earthly tabernacle, but in that highest place of all, in God's immediate presence in heaven, upon which the tabernacle of Israel was originally patterned. Christ, as our mediator and high priest, not only offered the sacrifice once for all, but he is the sacrifice. Like the high priest of old, Christ entered the holy place, but unlike the high priest, he entered he entered to offer himself. He had, to, he had to enter only one time, for he sprinkled his own blood on the mercy seat. <clears throat> That's just so good. <clears throat> All right, Christ as king. Throughout the Old Testament, um, in Psalms and the prophets, Israel was looking for an ideal king to come who would accomplish a victorious work for the kingdom that David and Solomon uh, at best could foreshadow, sort of point to. Yet the Old Testament ends without the Messianic king, the royal seed of David, having yet come. 
But many in Israel had been encouraged by the prophets to look for him. Malachi portrays this kingly descendant of David in terms of the Lord himself. <clears throat> the messenger of the covenant suddenly appears. Malachi 3.1, behold. Do I have that? No. Why do I have this PowerPoint if I don't have these pictures? Okay. Malachi 3.1. Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. <clears throat> so this anticipation of this king to come. Well, that king has come. And, his, and, he's, <clears throat> and he is king greater than David. He's a greater king than David. Christ came in the line of David as David's son, and yet also as David's Lord. Matthew 22, 40, 42 to 45. He is also the ruler of kings of the earth, Revelation 1.5. And he is king of kings and lord of lords, Revelation 19.16. That's including David, right? So he rules with perfect justice and equity. As our king, he has fought our battles and now rules in such a way that sin never can reign over us. The kingdom of God is here already, and yet it's not fully manifested. So how do we know the kingdom is here? Well, because the king of the kingdom has come and he currently reigns, right? <clears throat> Evidence of the kingdom is the king. <clears throat> All right, so that being hopefully a brief overview of what Pastor Rick delved into in more detail last week. Um, <clears throat> so our last point here, 15 minutes, that's good. Our last point here. Um, the Messiah's victory over Satan the accuser. <clears throat> Christ's victory over Satan the accuser. Throughout the Old Testament, I'm sorry, wrong place. From the primeval temptation and fall in the Garden of Eden, through the murder of Cain and Abel, through the wickedness and violence that led to the flood, and the disruption of sinful humanity at the Tower of Babel, through Abraham's lies, Jacob's dishonesty, through the satanic persecution of Job, through the grumbling of the people against Moses, through their unbelief that prevented them from entering the promised land in the early part of the wilderness journey, and then their adultery with the young women of Moab, the time of the judges, on through Solomon's shameful, demonized uh, demise, and David's fall into adultery and murder and his sinful numbering of the people, <clears throat> not to mention the adulterous worship of the split off of the northern kingdom and the final caving in to idolatry of the once faithful southern kingdom through the Seleucid and the Roman occupation of, rest of restored Palestine, which was the case in the time of Christ. And all of that we discern a dark shadow behind all these attempts to destroy the holy kingdom of God in Israel so as to replace the worship of God with that of Satan. The head of the evil kingdom unleashed his attacks in renewed fury with the birth of the Messiah. Although his divine revelation and a dream, <clears throat> although by divine revelation and a dream, Joseph and Mary and the Christ child escaped from the, the to the safety of Egypt, King Herod had all the children in the region of um, Bethlehem murdered so as to wipe out 
the baby Messiah, satanic forces. At the beginning of Christ's ministry, Satan fiercely tempted him to avoid the Father's way of obedience to the cross as the true mode of establishing the kingdom of love and light, and instead to worship Satan, who vainly offered him the entire world. Same tricks from the beginning. Same old thing. Less of the flesh, less of the eye, pride of life. That's what Satan has as his tactics. The evil one never left Christ alone for very long. He influenced Simon Peter to forbid the Lord from going to the cross, and later, and later would sift Peter. He entered into Judas Iscariot before he betrayed uh, the master, and somehow, all unseen, motivated the enmity and brutality of the cross of Calvary. But God Almighty never allowed the evil being to do any further than to accomplish the divine purposes of the salvation of the elect and the redemption of the cosmos. God is sovereign over all things. If we can't say God is sovereign over even Satan's devices, then he is not God. God has to be sovereign even over evil in order to be God. It's another conversation, but his word says it, so we hold to it as truth. Um, where did I stop at? <clears throat> Colossians 2, 14 and 15. Someone want to read this for us, Colossians 2, 14, 15? Thank you, Dan. <clears throat> so this demonstrates how the instrument so urged on by Satan, the crucifixion of Christ, actually became his total downfall. It was the very crucifixion of Christ that was that disarmed the evils and principalities and wicked places and purchased salvation for the elect, right? <clears throat> so Thomas Boston, um, an early um, 18th century theologian, made a point on this saying that Christ ruined the devil's empire by the very same nature that he had vanquished and by the very means which he had made use of to establish and confirm, and confirm it. He took not upon him the nature of angels, which is equal to Satan in strength and power, but he took part of flesh and blood that he might more signally triumph over the proud spirit of the human nature, which was inferior to his and had been vanquished by him in paradise. For this end, he did not immediately exercise omnipotent power to destroy him, but managed our weakness to foil the roaring lion. He did not enter the lists with Satan and the glory of his deity. He disguised himself under the human nature, which was subject to mortality. <clears throat> and thus, the devil was overcome. This is so good. He's overcome and the same nature over which he first got the victory. See what he's saying there? The same nature in which he first got the victory. So God, so God fully God, fully man, uh, flesh and blood, overcomes Satan. It says Adam failed to, he failed to triumph, he failed to um, exercise the authority given him by God. Christ comes in flesh and blood, fully God, yet fully man, hypostatic union, and overcomes Satan in the same way by the same nature, so to speak. 
As our ruin was affected by the subtlety of Satan, so our recovery is wrought by the wisdom of God, who takes the wise in their own craftiness. The Gospel of Mark indicates that the first beings in Christ's ministry to recognize that he was the Son of God were demons. These evil beings realized that Christ had come to torment them, it says in Matthew 5, 7. As part of the battle he was waging that would ultimately fulfill the longings of the Old Testament Israel for deliverance from their true enemy. <clears throat> Stephen Dempster in Dominion and Dynasty points out um, who the real enemy of the people of God is. That's a really great book, too, by the way. Stephen Dempster, Dominion and Dynasty, great book. Um, he says, Jesus reconstructed the battle which had to be fought as the battle against the real enemy, the accuser, the Satan. He renounced the battle that his contemporaries expected a Messiah to fight and that several would-be messiahs in their century would, only, would be too, only too eager to fight. He faced instead what he seems to have conceived as the battle against the forces of darkness. Standing behind the visible force, both Roman and Jewish ranged against him. Okay, so this is what he's saying here. Jesus didn't come to disarm the physical, visible forces of evil, primarily. He came to disarm the spiritual rulers and authorities behind those visible forces of evil. <clears throat> Hebrews 2, since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. <clears throat> right, so we, I, I have more to say on that, but I don't have a lot of time. Just quickly, we can't get so caught up on who the next president may be, who's in authority here, uh, what's being laid out there, but by the governing authorities and judicial court systems and all this stuff. It's important that we be aware and that we pray um, and be active um, in these things um, for the advancement of the kingdom. But Christ has already ultimately won the victory. Nothing that happens on an earthly system, having earth under the earth, will uh, diminish, will thwart the power and the rule and reign of Christ. Simply said, in the end, we win. <laughs> Everything that's happening is subject to the rule and reign of Christ. We shall not fear Christ is on our side. We are in union with him. Okay? So just an aside. I got five minutes. Let me keep going here. Um, <clears throat> all right. Revelation shows the grand conclusion of all this age-long battle with the definite day, a divinely appointed time, on which the devil, death, and hell shall be cast into the lake of fire. So it sounds strange to say, people don't say it often, but the devil is going to hell. He's not in hell reigning with his imps and saying, hey, you, go torture that guy. Poke that guy with the pitchfork. Throw that guy into this prison. No, hell was created for fallen angels. Satan is going to hell. No, it sounds weird to say. <laughs> Maybe it sounds weird to hear, but it's true, right? He's not 
he's not ruling and reigning there. He's, again, su subject to a sovereign and ruling God. All right, um, question and answer 32 of the Heidelberg Catechism, 1563, um, points out something that I think is really uh, good and helpful. Um, the question is, <clears throat> go. By, but why art thou called a Christian? Why are you called a Christian? The answer. Because by faith I am a member of Christ and thus a partaker of his anointing in order that I may also confess his name, may present myself a living sacrifice of thankfulness to him, and may, be, and, and may with free conscience fight against sin and the devil in this life and hereafter in eternity reign with him over all creatures. In Christ we win. This mighty victor over the powers of evil thus sought to destroy, um, well, the evil one who sought to destroy the universe in general and mankind in particular was able to win the battles of the ages because he opposed in deepest reality and fulfillment with, wait a minute, I read that wrong. Try this again. This mighty victor over the powers of evil that sought to destroy the universe in general and mankind in particular Christ, now, Christ was able to win the battle of the ages because he possessed in deepest reality and fulfillment with infinite fullness and efficacy all the names and titles ascribed to him through the Old and New Testament. His incarnate life fulfills all these names and titles, and he carries everything to its successive conclusion in unbroken fellowship with the Father and in the power of the Holy Spirit. Names, titles, Christ fulfills all of them. Um, and we'll talk about that more in our next lesson as we walk through some of the most significant names and titles given to Christ and look at the biblical significance of those names. <clears throat>